Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we looked at the power of the tech platforms on which many people get their news. Are they doing enough to combat fake news and do they wield too much power? This week, we hear from an author and critic of Silicon Valley who has written a book that offers some solutions to the problems of the digital age. In the digital 21st century, as we have smart machines, as we have an age of algorithms where everything is shaped by smart machines, whether it's smart cities, smart homes, smart bodies, smart cars, the challenge for us is where do we fit in? Because we're not actually that smart. We certainly aren't as smart as smart algorithms. Where we can be smart, though, is in our use of agency. That's what distinguishes us from machines. That's the voice of Andrew Keane. He came into the FT recently to talk to me about some of the ideas in his latest book, How to Fix the Future. Andrew, over the years you have developed a reputation as a great critic of Silicon Valley and big tech, but you have pivoted, as they say in your part of the world, and now written a more positive solutions book. Why the shift? It's not a shift. It's a natural progression. I wrote three books which were critical of user-generated content, social media, and the overall economic architecture of the web economy. Having made all those points, I pretty much wrote a, a trilogy of critiques of the digital revolution. So the next step is not to do another one. There are more and more books of this type. The zeitgeist has shifted dramatically. So the next logical, natural step was to write a book fixing all these issues. All right. But what is the problem you want to fix? There are a series of problems, I think, that are bound up in the technological revolution. The first problem, I think, is the increasing inequality, economic and otherwise cultural, between the tech industry and the rest of the world. The massive amount of economic inequality. I think the nine wealthiest billionaires in Silicon Valley are worth about two billion people in the world, the poorest two billion of the world. And is that the result of the technology companies themselves, or is it just automation more broadly defined? Yeah, I think blaming technology companies is wrong. I hope I've never done that. Even the notion of blame, as I've argued in other books, there is, for better or worse, a kind of dynamic in digital capitalism uh, that lends itself to a winner-take-all economy. It happened with Microsoft in the 90s. It's happened with Google and Facebook and Amazon. These are winner-take-all markets. There's only one really commerce store, one search engine, one social network. So blaming technology companies, I think, is really not the point. It's not as if these people are evil because they've done so well. In fact, they're very smart and very able. The challenge is, I think, trying to reshape the tech industry so it maintains its dynamism, its innovation, continues to create these amazingly exciting and convenient products, but at the same time doesn't compound the increasing inequality and the disappearance of the middle and the middle class. What I would also say is that it's not just tech that's contributing to inequality. Piketty, of course, wrote his famous book about capital in the 21st century, barely mentioning Silicon Valley. So this is a bigger issue than tech, but tech is increasingly central, I think, in the debate about inequality. The second issue is unemployment. I think most economists, I interviewed Jeffrey Sachs, for example, in the book, even McAfee and Bryn Johnson are probably the most optimistic economists around, except that there is a reasonable likelihood that automation is going to take away many, many jobs and not replace them with enough. 
So that's another issue on the horizon, inequality, jobs, the cultural crisis, fake news, narcissism, the endemic racism and hatred of women online, the sort of descent into, if you like, an intellectual barbarism, an insular echo chamber nature of the culture. We were promised that social media would make us more social, more connected. It's actually making us more isolated, more alienated and lonelier. All the research shows that. That's the third thing. And the fourth thing, I think, is the business model of some major Silicon Valley companies like Google and Facebook, which I describe as surveillance capitalism. They give away their products for free. They're great products. We all know everyone likes them. Many consumers are aware of their business model, don't care. Others are, are rather naive. But the reality of these business models is that they turn us, the user, into the product. And we're increasingly becoming mined by these big Silicon Valley companies whose money is made through advertising and through knowing us so intimately that their advertising rates are actually quite high. So those are the four broad areas that I think we need to address. Whether we can fix them all is another issue. But inequality, unemployment, cultural crisis, and surveillance capitalism. All right, there's a lot to unpack there. Do you think that the market itself will provide a solution to some of these issues? So we used to worry about the dominance of IBM. We used to worry about the dominance of Microsoft. Now we don't worry about either of those businesses. Well, John, I don't need to tell you that it wasn't the market that sorted out Microsoft. When Microsoft was dominant, particularly in the 1990s, in 96, 97, they suddenly discovered the internet and they wanted to turn the internet into a Microsoft product. But then the antitrust people got hold of Microsoft. There were a series of investigations. The company wasn't split up, but the investigations were so serious and thorough that Microsoft was put off its game, which enabled the Web 2.0 explosion of Facebook and Google. So I would argue very strongly that the market doesn't always solve these things. Our friend Peter Thiel, of course, argues, perhaps rightly, that if you just leave the market alone, you get natural monopolies. Now, Thiel, for some bizarre reason celebrates that. I think it's a disaster. It's a disaster for society. It's a disaster for innovation. It's a disaster for new entrepreneurs. And you do need an element of regulation. But that doesn't mean that the market has to be over-regulated. It doesn't mean you don't need a mix of regulation and innovation. And of course, the best regulators are innovative. The best regulators are the one whose regulation is designed to stimulate innovation and create a more level playing field like Margaret Vestager, the EU commissioner of antitrust, who I interview in the book. So it's really important not to fall into, if you like, the regulation trap. Some people are listening, oh, this guy's a socialist. This guy just wants big government. I don't. But throughout history, and I focus on this in the Industrial Revolution, during major technological, political, cultural, economic disruptions, you've needed an element of regulation. In the book, I talk about the regulation of the food industry in the Industrial Revolution or the regulation of the automotive industry, which were all essential if we're to have high-quality products and safe products. As you say, you focus very much on the kind of European response to big tech, and you go and interview Vestager, and you say that the most important place on the planet for determining the future of the global technology industry is in her office. Really? I do think that may be the case. I'm not sure if I quite put it that explicitly, but I think that we've reached, and Steve Case says this very clearly, we've sort of entered the political stage of the internet revolution. The first 25 years, you had a kind of utopian market economy that worked in some ways extremely well and in other ways really bad. It created a winner-take-all economy of big tech companies, you know, the so-called five horsemen of the apocalypse. And now the challenge is a political one. And the only regulator who has the gumption 
to take on these companies is in Brussels. It's Vestager. In the U.S., for various reasons, firstly, the dysfunctionality of the government, the confusion about where authority lies with the FTC and the FCC, the paralysis of Congress, and the fact that, especially during the Obama administration, Google and Eric Schmidt did a very good job on Obama and convinced him that these were you know, companies that didn't need any kind of investigation, that they were improving the world. The Americans have lagged behind. So I would argue absolutely that certainly in terms of the most important office in the world for the regulation of technology and therefore also innovation, it would be Vestager's office. She was the one who took on Tim Cook. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, went into Vestager's office, afterwards came out sweating saying that was the worst meeting he ever had. The reason it was the worst meeting he ever had is because finally someone took him on and forced Apple to actually pay their European taxes, which was billions of dollars. Okay, you live on the West Coast. To what extent do you think the tech titans get this shift in the world? Steve Case talks about the third wave, where as a lot of these technologies are now moving into areas like transport and education and healthcare, which are heavily regulated, they do need to deal with the government. So to what extent do you think they realise that there is a shift in their business patterns in terms of regulation and politics? Well, the interesting thing about Case is he was probably the most influential person in the Web 1.0 revolution, the CEO of AOL, the dominant tech internet company between the early 90s and the late 90s. But he's based on the East Coast. He's based in D.C. And he's specifically basically arguing in the way he does business and promotes and markets himself in the rise of the rest that the real innovation lies outside Silicon Valley. Within Silicon Valley, I think it's mixed. I think there are some people who get it. Some people who understand that there is a need for an element of regulation, people like Mark Benioff of Salesforce, I think Reid Hoffman gets it. But there are others, I think, who still cling, if not to a kind of hardcore libertarianism, certainly a very, very rigid belief that solutions will always come through the market. I think Mark Andreessen is an example of this. Obviously, Peter Thiel, although he's a bit of an outlier in every sense, and now he's left Silicon Valley kind of driven out because he's become so politically incorrect. But I think Andreessen and other senior members of the Silicon Valley establishment, particularly in the VC community, are still very wary of government regulation. I think part of that is because Washington, D.C. is so inefficient, so corrupt, so badly run. I have a feeling if these guys were in Europe or in another country, certainly Singapore or Estonia, which have much more innovative governments, which attract much better quality people, they might have a different opinion. So it's kind of chicken and egg in America in terms of people's attitude towards the state. When you have a state that attracts low quality people, then the smart people go into business. It's almost inevitable that they don't trust the state. You know, one of the great challenges in America, which really doesn't have anything to do with technology, is how to reinvent public service to attract smart people again. I can't imagine that many people in the Trump administration will be very sympathetic readers of your book, but clearly will be more so in Congress. Do you think that they I mean, look, I'm not a huge fan of Trump on lots of levels. He's the first, in my view, kind of narcissist social media president. But actually, he's made some noises about antitrust. His problem, of course, is he personalizes everything. So it seems like his hostility towards the Time Warner AT&T deal has nothing to do with antitrust. It has to do with the fact that he doesn't like CNN. But I think there are people within Trump's orbit who would be sympathetic. 
Steve Bannon is obviously not in the orbit anymore, but he has been very outspoken in his belief that there's a need to introduce antitrust to Silicon Valley. Same is true of Ted Cruz. Now, Ted Cruz is sort of arm's length to Trump. But what's interesting, I think, in Washington, D.C., is you're having noises both from the left and the right, both from Cruz and Bannon, who are about as hard right as you can get, you know, Breitbart and Texas. And then you also have similar sorts of noises from Warren and Sanders, which is the extreme, at least in America, the extreme left. So clearly something's up. And it's going to take some time. And given the dysfunctionality and paralysis of government in the US, who knows if it'll ever become real. But I think it's certainly more real now than it was when I began writing the book. If I was rewriting the book now, I'd include a lot of stuff a lot of congressmen who are actually more active. One of my friends out in Silicon Valley is a guy called Roger McNamee. He's the managing partner at Elevation Ventures, one of the best-known VCs in... Um, he recently wrote a big essay on Facebook. Well, he's come out against Facebook. He was one of the original investors in Facebook. Elevation Ventures, by the way, Elevation Partners was backed by Boney and a, a number of very significant investors. So it's a big VC firm. He was an early investor in Facebook. He was sort of the mentor to Zuckerberg in the early days, and he was so close, such a mentor, that he was actually the one who introduced Sheryl Sandberg to Zuckerberg. So he was the one who made sure that the trains ran on time in Facebook, that it grew up from a, you know, a scrappy startup to a real company when Sheryl joined. He is extremely outspoken about the way in which, particularly recently, Facebook is undermining democracy through fake news. And he's kind of, I wouldn't say formally relocated himself, he's spending a lot of his time in D.C., lobbying and talking to congressmen. And he said they're quite receptive. Let's talk more about some of the solutions that you propose. You come up with a new Moore's Law. Can you talk us through that? Well, most tech books begin with Gordon Moore's Law. Of course, the law of the power of computer chips double every 18 months. And of course, it is a very important engine. It explains why we can all now carry supercomputers around in our pocket. And one day, they'll probably be embedded in our hands or our brains. The problem, of course, with Moore's Law, which I suggest in my first chapter, is it's enabling technology to run ahead of us. It's creating such massive disruption and dislocation and chaos that we feel less and less empowered. We feel as if this technology is so out of control and the big companies controlling it are so large and unaccountable that there's not much we can do. That's the real nature, I think, of many people's feelings about the gap between technological progress and human progress and human empowerment. I argue in the book that that's always been the case in periods of great transformation, certainly true in the Industrial Age and the Reformation in the Renaissance, where huge changes changed how people thought about the universe themselves, their economy. So I introduced Moore's Law. Thomas More, of course, 16th century Englishman who wrote Utopia. Moore argues that there's another law, I call it Moore's Law, in which the real challenge and importance of humans in society is to take responsibility for the past and to shape the world according to our values, to step forward. I think Moore was writing Utopia very much in response to Luther's notion of predestination. Luther, of course, kind of disempowered our feelings about ourselves in predestination, because if God was so absolute and infinite, then there wasn't much we can do in terms of our behavior on the earth. Moore has always been presented as a conservative and Luther as a radical, but actually I think probably the reverse is true. So I 
developed the idea of Moore's Law as one that promotes agency. And it's a reminder to people that we all have a responsibility to manifest Moore's Law. And, you know, from everything from being parents and teachers to entrepreneurs to regulators to citizens to electors to politicians. And I think it's the theme running through the book. In the digital 21st century, as we have smart machines, as we have an age of algorithms where everything is shaped by smart machines, whether it's smart cities, smart homes, smart bodies, smart cars. The challenge for us is where do we fit in? Because we're not actually that smart. We certainly aren't as smart as smart algorithms. Where we can be smart, though, is in our use of agency. That's what distinguishes us from machines. I think that agency is critical. Agency is the theme running through my book, and that's what my Moore's Law, Thomas Moore's Law, is all about. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Now, you travel around the world in search of people who get this new Moore's Law, and you found some in Singapore and Estonia in particular. Can you tell us, in both cases, what are they doing to enshrine the principle of human agency? Well, I think what they're doing is pioneering innovation in digital, particularly in government. I was particularly intrigued and, I guess, impressed by the Estonian model. Singapore, I'm slightly more ambivalent about because of its quasi-democratic, quasi-authoritarian politics. But when it comes to Estonia, I think what the Estonian government is doing is architecting a new social contract on data between citizens and government. Now, we would all like to, of course, go back to our 19th century verities about privacy and data, the sort of Louis Brandeis notion that we can be protected through regulation, our privacy can be guaranteed. I'm not sure that's the case in the digital 21st century. For better or worse, we're spewing data in everything we do. And in the future, we're going to be spewing even more data. So the challenge is not so much creating a privacy. The challenge is creating transparency and accountability in government. And I think what the Estonians are doing is recognizing that the government will indeed know a lot about us. But that's okay as long as the government is accountable and alerts us when it's looking at our data. Of course, the nightmare in that context is the reverse in China, which is creating a big data, big brother digital state where the state is continually pouring over our data, where they know more and more, the Chinese government know more and more about its citizens, and using that data to reward political obediency and punish people who question the state. I was very struck by one of the interviews you had in the book with Thomas Hendrik Elvers, the former president of Estonia, who basically, as I read it, had given up on the idea that we can still defend privacy. It's impossible in this kind of data world. But he was talking about the importance of data integrity. So he didn't really care very much whether you or I knew what blood type he was. What he really was concerned about was someone going into a computer system and changing his blood type, which could threaten his life. Is that right, do you think? Are we living in a post-privacy age? Have we just lost that battle? I think we're losing it. The context of Ilvis's comments were in terms of Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden also plays a role in my book. Snowden, of course, was particularly worried about the state or companies, but particularly the state, watching everything we do. 
But I think Ilves is right that the issue is not Big Brother, at least in the democratic West. The issue is the accountability of government and the trustworthiness of government. One of the greatest scarcities of the digital age is trust. One of the greatest scarcities, which is in more and more crisis, is trust. The famous Edelman Trust Barometer, which is like the gold standard in measuring trust. Every year, Edelman announces this at Davos, and every year it's lower. And um, The only two countries in the world where there seem to be any trust left in government is Singapore and Estonia. Again, Singapore is a slightly different situation, but I think the Estonian model is interesting. Again, it's chicken and egg. Why are they trusted? A lot of it has to do with political culture, the legacy of the Soviet era. But I do think that has to be the way we go in terms of shaping a digital democracy. It doesn't mean that everything is known. I also think that blockchain technology, which I'm slightly ambivalent about, doesn't solve everything. But ultimately, blockchain technology can be valuable here too, a kind of a public ledger. But it needs to be a public ledger that not everyone can look at. And it needs to be a public ledger which we in terms of our data, have ultimate authority to. I hope that the general data protection regulation in Europe will begin to shape something like this in Europe. It's going to take some time. It's incredibly complicated. But I think the GDPR is on the right lines here. One of the things that comes out of your book is the way that different parts of the world are moving in different directions. As you're suggesting, there seems to be an American system, a European system, and China is adopting a very different model as well. Do you believe in this new kind of notion of a splinter net, that the internet was supposed to be a universal invention and is now actually going to break down into different interpretations of it? Do I believe that it's a reality or that it's good? Both. I think it's a reality. I'm ambivalent about the goodness of it. I think the original idea of a global community was the cyber utopian notion of John Perry Barlow, Tim Berners-Lee that would bring the world together. And I think that was a noble one, and I think those guys were very genuine. The problem, though, I think, is that a lot of commercial companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon have picked up this idea of a global Internet and use it really to just promote their own market dominance throughout the world. So I think when you actually peel away some of the arguments in favor of a global Internet, what you really see are the corporate ambitions of the new tech superpowers. So I don't have a problem with this fragmentation. And just as in physical terms, the world is diverse, so I don't have a problem with the digital world being diverse. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm vindicating what the Chinese get up to or the Russians get up to. But at the same time, it's not really my business to determine sovereignty in China or Russia. I don't approve of those governments. I don't approve of the systems. But that's neither here nor there. And I actually, in some ways, celebrate what's, I think, being born in Europe. Investica says this very clearly in my conversation with her where you're seeing an internet reflect what she sees as European values, which is essentially Northern European, moderately statist values. And I think the splinternet overall is something that we should celebrate. We should celebrate diversity. I think this idea that we're all the same and that the digital world will unite the world has proved to be an absurd delusion. We've seen it with Zuckerberg who used it to justify his dominance of the world. And ultimately, we don't want uniformity. We want diversity. Okay. Now, one of your five solutions focuses very much on education. But you also say, in many ways, it's a bit of a cheap solution in that people say automatically, well, education's the answer, and then you throw the problem into the laps of underpaid and overworked teachers. 
What do you mean by education as part of the solution? How do you think education can play a role in bringing about the human agency that you want in a tech-dominated economy? Well, my critique is that these education issues are so big, and I, and I always make the joke that we have these sorts of conversations at tech conferences and tech events where we talk about all the problems. At the end, no one quite knows what to do, so they say, well, it's a problem for education. And of course, when people say that, particularly in tech, it means they really have no idea what to do. I think new kinds of education are incredibly important in terms of stimulating agency. It's clear that we don't need to train kids in schools or, for that matter, grown-ups in universities or continuing education establishments. We don't need to teach them to become adding machines. We don't need to teach them rote learning. Everything now is accessible on Google. We have machines to do all that. We will increasingly have machines that will determine law cases and medical cases and will be able to build bridges and aeroplanes. But the one thing that these smart machines can't do, I think, is display human agency. So the human agency thing is particularly important. Machines can't manifest empathy. They can't be creative. They can't have goals. So I think what our reinvented education needs to do is focus on that agency, on indeed developing what one teacher in my book called the muscle of agency. And again, ironically or not, one school tradition which is doing this is a rather old one, the Waldorf school system that was pioneered by Rudolf Steiner after the First World War in industrial Germany, who did indeed focus not so much on rote learning, but on creativity and play. And Ironically or not, some of the leading technologists and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley went to Waldorf or Montessori schools, Larry Page and, and Sergey Brin, for example. So I think that's what we need to do. We need to challenge many of our assumptions about education. It's a tough one. It's not an easy one to fix, but it's no coincidence the people who know most about this technology the executives of Silicon Valley, they're the ones sending their kids to Waldorf schools. One of the most popular Waldorf oversubscribed schools in the U.S. is in Mountain View. And many leading executives from local companies like Google and Apple send their kids there. Steve Jobs didn't allow his kids to use iPhones or iPads. It doesn't mean that these are bad products. It just means that for kids to develop properly, they need to be thinking for themselves. Now, I'm not necessarily in favor of banning screens in schools. Even the Waldorf education discourages screens at an early age, but once you get to about 11 or 12, then screens enter the classroom. But I don't think just focusing on programming or computer skills is a wise way of reinventing our education system. Schools have to teach both Moore's laws. Exactly. Yeah, you put it very nice. Both Moore's laws. There need to be courses in M-O-R-E's law and M-O-O-R-E's law. Right. Final point I want to quiz you on is you have this very striking analogy in the book, which I think you took initially from a German tech entrepreneur, about comparing what happened with Ralph Nader, his book Unsafe at Any Speed that came out in 1965, in which he chastised the car companies for their unsafe products that killed so many people on America's roads with what is going on now in the digital age, the dominance of the big companies, the fact that they are putting out products which are dangerous, although it has to be said that clearly Googles and Facebooks are not killing anyone, and that there will be a regulatory backlash in the way that there was in the 1960s as a result of the car companies' careless, in, in some cases, reckless practices. How far can that analogy be developed, do you think? I think it's an interesting analogy. I think it's particularly 
interesting as a warning to Silicon Valley because, of course, they're dominant at the moment. There's no doubt about it. And there is, everybody knows, a degree of arrogance, a sense of superiority, an idea that no one can challenge them. But that was what the American car industry was like in the 1950s. Chrysler, Ford, these were dominant companies. They had almost no competition from anywhere else. Certainly there was no German or Japanese industry. So as you say, Nader in 65 came out with his unsafe at any speed. It became clear that many American cars were death traps. And this enabled the rise of the German and the Japanese car industries, particularly the German car industry, which kind of re-engineered the American car industry and focused on safety. Now, Regulation was important there, but it's more of a consumer-driven thing. The reason why people don't buy American cars anymore is because they're not attractive to consumers. The consumers lost faith in them. The regulators didn't ban American cars. The regulators didn't discourage consumers from buying American cars. So ultimately, I think this comes back to my law about consumers is they can really drive some of this stuff. Now, it's true, of course, that some consumers will say, well, we don't care about Facebook knowing everything about us. We have nothing to hide. And maybe those people don't have anything to hide. But ultimately, I think when people really think to themselves, do they really want an impersonal multinational corporation knowing everything about them? Do they really want them to be unaccountable? It's one thing for a government, an accountable elected body, to know everything about them, to have all our data. But do we really want these companies? We have no idea what they're doing with our data. We have no idea really of their business model. Their business model is as much a secret as Coca-Cola's recipe for their soft drinks. And I think ultimately what Silicon Valley needs to do is understand that consumers will turn on them. It may take a while. It may take a kind of Chernobyl size data catastrophe. But I think that will happen. Something will get hacked. Something of such significance, such profundity, that consumers' eyes will be finally open to this. And then I think, as you see the rise, as I suggest in the book, of say a new search engine in Germany called Clicks, which is trying to build a search engine, which is the anti-Google and is not premised on mining people's data, these businesses will seem very attractive. After all, you know, if I'd been making this argument in the 1950s about Mercedes or Volkswagen, people would look at me as if I was an idiot. But today, I would be less of an idiot. So I think this is a real concern, less on the regulatory, more on the market side. So you think Silicon Valley could go the way of Detroit? In the long term, absolutely. Everyone goes in the way of Detroit. You know, we always joke, there's only two certainties in life, taxes and death. I would argue the third would be Detroit. <laughs> Wonderful. You must end it there. But thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you, John. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon. <laughs>